Good evening. It is a pleasure to be here with you all on this year annual uh, rally. And uh, I suppose on one hand it is perhaps a reflection of the hardness of Argyle, but the particular part where Mr. Roberts missioned in 1951 today remains as hard as ever. And in fact, today there is no church in that particular area. And uh, with that in mind, may I ask you and urge you to continue not only to uphold the work of the gospel in Inverness, but uphold the cause of Christ to the ends of the earth. Because it is the world that needs Christ, and that world includes Argyle, as well as it includes your own town here in Inverness. I want us to turn this evening for a short time, and I know it's getting late on in the program, and one girl said to me, you'll excuse me if you find my head down, but I haven't slept for a long time, and I hope this next half hour or so will not encourage her to sleep either, nor you. And I trust that as we look at God's word together, we may know his blessing. But I'd like us to turn to the verses that we read and to center our thoughts around this parable, looking perhaps in particular at verses 16 to the end and taking for our text verse 20, where we read, God said to him, You fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? Now I'm sure that many people here this evening who are Christians, I'm sure there are many police officers here this evening who would vouch for the same fact or to the same fact that on many occasions as a Christian, one has been viewed as a fool. Perhaps you can remember the first shift you went to, maybe 10, maybe 15, maybe 20 men, and you were the only Christian. And you had to bear testimony to the fact that you were a follower of Christ. You can remember perhaps the night you spoke to the first one, maybe on night shift. And for the rest of the night shift it was a long, long time. Because you sensed his attitude to you was the one of total indifference and one that viewed you as an absolute idiot. I'm sure there are many of you who have neighbours who have equally encountered that same sentiment that because you live differently because your values are slightly different you are fools perhaps you're in business and you have many colleagues many associates who are of the same opinion there may be ministers here this evening and on many times either in your own congregation or 
in other congregations where you have stood up to preach the old, old story of the cross. You have sensed the indifference. You have sensed the hostility. And you've even been told to your face that what you speak of is absolute nonsense. You're a fool for believing it. You're another fool for preaching it. But the great legacy of the Christian is that in every generation the world has viewed it as foolishness. But I want us this evening to remember and to remind ourselves of something very, very important. And I want to remind those here this evening who perhaps aren't Christians that it's the Christian who's the wise one, not the fool. Now I'm not saying to you this evening that the Christian life is one bed of roses with no problems, no difficulties, no trials, no troubles. I would be telling a lie and I would be denying the reality of the Christian faith if I were to say it was. Because all who love Christ this evening will vouch for the fact that it is something absolutely marvelous to be a Christian. But it is also something very difficult. Because it's a trial. It's a warfare. And there is enemy, there is the enemy at every quarter, at every corner, in every day. Sometimes very obvious, sometimes very subtle. But the Christian is confronted daily almost with the reality that he is in the midst of a warfare because he is on the side of the King of Kings. Because he has moved camps from that of darkness to that of light. Because he has turned from following the prince of this world to giving obedience and honor and glory and worship to the God of gods, to the God who is no equal, to the God who is matchless. And the Christian, therefore, this evening, is the winner, even though confronted with all these difficulties. We are reminded by John that the Christian is an overcomer. He's on the winning side. He's on the winning side because of what Christ has done in his heart and in his life. He's conqueror, winner, overcomer because of this new dynamic relationship that he has with Jesus Christ. He's winner also because of the glorious prospects that he has on account of that relationship, on account of that promise and commitment by Christ to him. That yea, though he has departed, he is coming again to take the believer to where he is to glory itself, to everlasting life, to an endless relationship and experience with him in glory. And when I say that, I say it in order to reiterate the fact that if you're a non-Christian in this hall this evening, the non-Christians of the world this evening, they are the ones that are the fools. And I want us to turn for a short time to this parable this evening to find out exactly why such people are fools. And I want us to see that it's not my opinion, nor is it the opinion of the church, 
Nor is it the opinion of the minister. It is the opinion of God that the non-Christian, the unbeliever, the indifferent one to his love and to his grace and to his invitation is the fool. And it's highlighted, this, this assessment and this statement, it's highlighted for us in this particular parable here concerning the rich farmer. Jesus was interrupted by a man who obviously had been untouched by all this serious matter that Jesus had been speaking of from chapter 10 to chapter 12. And he interrupts him with this very earthy and materialistic kind of question. And Jesus uses it to show the foolishness of man's mind and man's heart, to lay up his eternal security on the, thing, on the things of this world, on the things that matter little, in the abundance of the things he possesses, as he says in verse 15. Now here you notice first of all that the assessment that is made is not on account of the fact that man, this particular man or any man, is successful. That is not why a man is classed a fool. Because God nowhere condemns a man for being successful. Nowhere does God condemn a man for being wealthy. Because throughout the scriptures there are many men who were not only successful but very wealthy. And therefore that's not the reason that man is a fool. And it's not also the fact he isn't a fool because of the great gain that he has made. Because throughout this parable, the implications are that it's God that made him so prosperous in the first place, so successful. So why is it that we say men are losers, men who store up the weight or who place all their confidence in the abundance of the things they possess? Why is it such men are deemed foolish by the great God who made them? by the God that they must all stand before, by the God that will ultimately separate those who love him from those who hate him. And I want you to note four or five things. I want you to notice first of all that this man is deemed a fool because he lived first of all with no place in his life for God. He had no place, no iota in his experience for the living God. No place in his thoughts, first of all, because his thoughts were taken up solely with himself. His thoughts were concerning all that he had, all that he was to do, all that he could plan to do. This man, in all practical terms, was an atheist. He had no mind for God. God never came into his reasoning at all. And no matter how his heart at times must have told him on account of the fact that he knew that he was a man that must face God. And he knew that he was a man that was accountable. And his conscience forever rebuked him. He still blanketed from his mind the reality of God. And no matter how often he strolled in his farm, across his fields, surveying all he possessed, 
looking up into the heavens and reading the skies as to what day it would be tomorrow. Looking into the glory of the heavens as they declare the glory of God and the God who made them. Did he give place in his experience for God? But you notice also he lived with no place for God in his thankfulness either. He's a very prosperous, he's a very successful farmer. And we must always remember as we look at this parable that the caricature that is made fits any man who lives like this man. And perhaps this man is you this evening. And not only did this man live with no place in his mind or in his reasoning for God, perhaps he's like you this evening, he's living with no thankfulness to God either. He had so much. In fact, his barns were so big that they couldn't hold all that he had accumulated. And so he's planning the bigger barns and yet bigger ones in order to store more. But for one moment does he stop to give God thanks? For one moment does he stop to give God thanks for the sunshine that brought the seed forth? Does he give God thanks for the abilities that he gave him? That in, these innate abilities to be the kind of person that made him so successful? Did he thank God for all that he possessed to be the kind of successful man that he was? We find in this parable that in no place is given at all to God and to thanksgiving to God. Nowhere is he lifting up his voice and saying, Blessed be Jehovah for all his benefits. What shall I render unto him? There is no thought like that. But you notice also, just as he lived with no thought for God, just as he lived with no thankfulness, so he also lived with no time for God. There was time for the speculation as to how he may better invest his, his, his income. There was time for strategy as to how to produce more, how to accumulate a more storage space and more grain, how to better distribute it in order to bring in more income. There was time for eating, there was time for drinking, there was time for merriment, there was time for self, but there was no time, no one moment in his experience for the living God. Now I'm asking you this evening, does this fit your experience? If you're a non-Christian, if you've never come to the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've never humbled yourself before him, if you've never sought his forgiveness, if you've never experienced the peace that passes all understanding, is this your kind of experience this evening? That no matter how much your mind tells you God is, you deny it. And no matter how much God has given you because he shines on the unjust and the just with his favor in providence. But no matter how much he's given you, no matter how much prosperity he's given you, no matter how much stability in your home he's given you, no matter how much love in your marriage he's given you, no matter how much friendship in the community he's given you, you have never lifted up your heart and said to God, thank you. You have never said to God, thank you for the breath I'm breathing today. 
You've never said thank you to God for the home you live in, for the family you possess, for the job you hold down, for the income that keeps you secure. Have you ever given time to Him? You have time for all your plans like the farmer. You have times for all your speculation. You have times for dreaming great dreams for the future. But how much time have you given to Christ in the last week? How much time have you given to the Savior in the life that you've lived? Whether you be 80, 70 or 17, have you given time? But I want you to notice also that this man was a fool not only because he lived without God, but because he lived a pretend existence. And the pretense existence that he lived is reflected in several ways. He lived, first of all, denying the truth of his existence, denying the fact that he was mortal, because it seems that the more he accumulated, the more he pushes back from his experience at this time, the fact that he must yet die, the fact that he must yet meet his maker, the fact that he is a spiritual creature, made for God, made to glorify God, and ultimately made that, that he will stand before God, doesn't come into his existence or into his reasoning. He thinks that life's going to go on and on and on and on and never end. You have accumulated much. Sit back, take your ease. You have a great stores laid up for many years. That's a pretense that so many of us live with. We're young and we think we have all the time in the world. We'll think we'll take seriously these matters in a number of years' time. But this man lived with this pretense and that pretense caught up with him in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. But not only was his pretense seen here, you notice that he's also pretending because he's Believing that things will satisfy, things will please, things will bring the answers to all his deep cravings. And it's suggestive, isn't it, even in the parable as we read it, that no matter how much he's accumulated and he's got a lot, he's still totally dissatisfied. He's still unable to say he's got enough. He's still unable to say that he's arrived. He's complete. He's content. He lived a pretense existence. Do you live like that? Do you live in a make-believe world that denies the fact that you're a mortal creature that will ultimately face the valley of the shadow as all men and all women and all boys and all girls will face? Do you live in the make-believe world that imagines that the abundance of things is what really matters. This man lived with that kind of mentality and God's assessment is this, that he's a fool because man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. But thirdly, he was a fool. He was a fool because he lived a life that was pitiable. Now I'm sure that we have many friends 
that we wish we only had something of what they've got because that something would answer our particular problems or dilemmas at a given time. And looking into the experience of this particular man this evening, I'm sure there are many of us who would say if only we had a portion of his fortune, what a great answer it would be to our particular problems this evening. But I want to suggest to you this, that God says this man's life is pitiable. There is nothing in it to be coveted because it is a life that is foolish. Why is it foolish? It's foolish, you notice, because he's so contemptuous of everyone else. He's a man who's utterly selfish, who's thinking only of number one all the time. And that kind of man possesses no endearment, no attraction at all to God or to any man when man is honest with this kind of individual. But not only is he pitiable because of his contemptuous attitude to everyone else, he is pitiable, you notice, because of his captivation with himself. He's your number one egotist. He's the sort of man that stands in the mirror many a morning and put his shoulders back and marvel at what he is. Marvel at his dignity or his imagined dignity. Marvels at all that he's accumulated. Look how many times I or my comes into the picture throughout this, this parable. Twelve times in a matter of four or five verses. I will say to myself, I shall do this. I have no more room to store my crops. And so on the I and the my permeates this man's character. He lives for himself. No one else matters. He's the one that is only important. But you notice also, it is pitiable because of his carelessness over his own soul. Because throughout this parable, as he's captivated with himself, and as he lives with no time for God, so this man is careless over the most important thing that a man can deal with. The safety of his soul and his rightness with God before he meets his maker. I have a picture of this man in our own generation. I have a picture of him as Jesus told the parable. In our own generation I see this man as the kind of man who comes home from his work in the evening. The fire is lovely and burning hot. The meal has been served. He's talked a little with his wife. And maybe talked a little even with his children if he spared the time. He's eased himself into his big armchair. He's taking a drink, relaxing with a cigarette or a cigar even. Around him lies the papers of success, the journals of farm management, the journals of financial investment. Around him lies all these paraphernalias of success. As this man sits in his easy chair, is there a thought for God? Is there a thought over the safety of his soul? No, there's not one thought given. Not one thought. I again picture this man as someone who says, in his mind as he eases into the chair. 
I'm sure the minister was around last week. He talked a lot about eternal security. He talked a lot about the necessity of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He talked a lot about the need for sins forgiven. He talked a lot about the life that one could experience if we allowed Jesus enter the life, enter the heart, and change it. But he pushes himself further back. Ah, he's only too zealous. He's a bit fanatical. He's a bit too narrow-minded. He's a bit extreme, our minister is. I'll give him my donation. I'll uphold the cause. I'll be seen maybe even at times within the walls of the building. But concerning my soul, there is no need to be alarmed. All is well with my soul. Because my barns are full, my bank balance is good. My manager never has to rebuke me for being overdrawn too often. My family are well fed. They are well looked up to. All is well with my soul as the man's own estimation of his position. Peace, peace, he's crying out. Never mind the fanatical approach. Never mind the cry for responding to the invitation of the gospel. Never mind this conversion lark. Never mind the new birth. Never mind the whole death and all its significance of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. He died to save me all as well. There's nothing else I need to do. He lives the lie. He believes the lie. And he takes no care for his soul. Are you like that this evening? Is that you this evening in the parable that we read? But this man also is a fool because he lived with the wrong perspectives. Roy said earlier on when he spoke about perspective, we live as, a, as men and women who haven't just got a three score and ten if we're fortunate. We are men and women who are made for eternity. We are men and women who must ultimately meet our Maker. And we will ultimately meet our Maker to be drawn into the glory that He has prepared for His people, all those that love Him. Or we will be cast into that place that He Himself calls hell and He Himself describes as a place where there is only weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Where there is only the realization in people's hearts that they were absolutely foolish when they ignored the days of opportunity. When they were absolutely stupid in failing to have responded to the days when they were invited to come. To the days when their hearts told them there was a God, there was a judgment, there was a day when they would be separated from Him. How wrong this man's perspective was. I haven't laid up much Take your ease. I have many years this is dream. Is that yours? It certainly wasn't the Apostle Paul's. 
For the Apostle Paul to live was good, but to die was gain because to die was far better. And when Paul is defending the great reality of the resurrection to the church in Corinth, again he reminds us of the perspective of the believer and the reason why the believer is no fool but an overcomer, a winner, a one that is more than conqueror. When he's talking of the nature of that resurrection body, he says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we shall be changed, because we shall rise, and we shall rise to live eternally with God. That is eternity. And lo, behold, if we ignore the reality of that perspective as we live our lives through. You go back even into the Old Testament with Abraham. And how many years did Abraham live before Christ came? And before man knew with all confidence that the grave was not the end. Many years he lived. But yet Abraham looked through the years, through the tunnel that he saw to eternity, and what did he look for? He looked for a city whose maker was God and whose existence it would be eternal. Is that your perspective? Or is your perspective that of the fool this evening? Because you haven't reckoned with it and you're not particularly interested in it. Well, if your perspective is earthly this evening, like this man's, let me conclude by showing how he was so foolish. Because he lived, yes, he lived, and he lived a marvelous life, doubtless. He lived with all the accoutrements of good living. And I'm doubt, I could doubtless say that he enjoyed it. And there are many things in this man's life that is absolutely commendable. He fended for his family. He used his initiative. He put the gifts God gave him into practice. And God blessed him abundantly for that. But though he lived with all these pluses or all these seeming pluses, yet his life was lived so foolishly. And ultimately you notice the climax of his foolishness is seen. In that very moment, in that very night, and maybe as he speculated on the future and the many more years that he had to enjoy his wealth, the night God came, and the night God called, the night he died. Notice that he lived a fool. But notice also that this man died a fool and you also will die. A fool if you die unprepared to meet your maker. And you die with sins not forgiven. And you die without love of Christ and without any endeavor to glorify the name of God. Notice three things in the man's death. Notice how sudden it was. Tonight. Tonight. Now Roy and Tom, they live with a the reality every day they step out of their homes that perhaps in a moment it can be gone. But you don't have to be living under the threat of the bullet for the call of God to come so suddenly. It can come even now so suddenly. 
But notice also how solemn it was. Because he lived with no God ever in his thoughts. But when his end comes, it is God that he is to reckon with. Because it is God who says to him tonight, tonight your soul will be required of you. And notice how sad it was. Notice how sad it was. Because he lived with everything. He lived with absolutely everything that was possible to achieve at his fingertips. Where did it leave him? As he stands before his maker, Jesus tells us, bankrupt, with absolutely nothing. He couldn't call upon his riches. He couldn't present his abilities. He couldn't use all the initiative that he'd put into practice as possible reasons for this God not to cast him from his presence and to put him to that place where Lazarus, you, where, where Lazarus ended up, you remember. Where the rich man ended up. Lifting up his eyes, being in torment. None of these things could save him. And none of these things could help him. None of these things mattered when he stood before his God. And I say to you this evening as we close, if you live without God and if even tonight God comes and calls you and thus you die without God because it is appointed unto man to die once to die but is that the end? no that's not the end because the scriptures tell us that just as it is appointed unto man once to die there follows the judgment now the rich man faced that judgment and he would face the ultimate judgment with bankrupt, with bankruptcy. Is that the way you would meet him this evening? Is that the way you would stand before him? Unable to tell him that you loved his saviour. Unable to tell him that you knew of his grace and his love. Unable to tell him that you'd experienced his forgiveness. Unable to tell him that yes, you knew of that moment when he lifted you up from the mighty clay and set your feet upon the rock. Because if you are unable to stand before him with these reasons, and stand before him covered in the blood of Christ, cleansed from the sin that separates man from God then you will stand with this kind of bankruptcy you will stand a fool I wonder if I'm speaking to a police constable who's maybe not even long joined the force looking ahead with many years ahead to enjoy put a lot into but have you considered as you've thought through the years of police service of the most important priority of all the Lord Jesus Christ and your relationship to him 
I wonder if I'm speaking to any officer of rank this evening who has enjoyed perhaps many years of police service and enjoyed the experience of promotion enjoyed the stability of the job that you can do and even looking ahead to the prospect of retirement and many years yet beyond that to enjoy and fulfill have you and I ask you with all earnestness have you made certain of your calling have you made certain of a right relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder if I'm speaking to a visitor this evening. What about you? If God came to you this evening, would his assessment be of you that you're a fool or that you're wise? If God comes to any one of us this evening, where would we spend eternity? Let us not be fools. The Lord Jesus Christ came into the world to make men that are losers winners. To make men and women that have no real standing before God. Individuals that can stand before Him in complete confidence. He came into the world to deal with the problem of our foolishness, of our lostness, in order that eternity might not be fearful, but might be glorious, might be looked forward to with expectation, might be like Paul, anticipated with joy, because of all that it holds out to the man and to the woman who have bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. So may God help you not to be a fool, but to come to Christ this evening and love Him dearly. Amen.